0: You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome Interactome.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Sam LaRusa. I uh, am returning to the interactome. I think we've been doing some uh, relatively small scale episodes recently, um, which is great, but hi, if you've forgotten who I am, uh, I am a biochemistry PhD student. And actually, for this episode, I'm mainly going to be focusing on the fact that I am actually not the person who's posting all of our stuff on our Twitter. We have a wonderful, dedicated social media person, uh, Natalie, uh, who has a lot of experience with science communication and with uh, picking articles and things to share with people. And so I wanted to uh, start off by asking a question to her about how we find The articles that we share on our social media. So, this episode is going to be primarily focused on sources. So, where do we get our information from? How do we interpret it? And how do we know what is reputable and what might not be? And so, we're just going to kind of each talk about our personal experience with this. uh, And hopefully, this episode will be a little bit easier to follow. I'll be trying out a new format where we'll be having one person speak about their experiences and then commenting on that and then moving on to the next. And each person is going to have their own individual focuses.
0: Awesome. Yeah, Sam, thank you for that introduction. Um, we we as a group decided that this is such an important topic to cover because especially in the age of social media, there is so much information out there and it can get overwhelming to decipher where information comes from and what's to be trusted. So I'll give a little background on what I do for social. I have when I'm like drafting social for Interactum for like the following week, I always stick to sources that I know. Fact check. Always stick to sources that I know will cite studies that they talk about. So um, that's kind of that's kind of where I start. But I'm I'm gonna backtrack a bit and start with a personal anecdote. So my background is in is in science communication, and in 2018. I was an intern at WGBH NOVA, so they are a part of PBS. They do um, science documentaries, and my internship was focused entirely on fact-checking. It was my job to go through every documentary that NOVA made that hadn't been published yet and go through every scientific claim, every factual claim that was in the documentary and find not one, but two sources, two trusted sources to support that claim. And the reason you always want two is because you want, I, I don't know, I just, I just feel like one, it, it sounds silly to say, but one just isn't enough. Like anybody can kind of come up with one claim, but if you have multiple separate trusted sources saying the same thing, then it becomes more reputable. Maybe that's not the best way to explain it. And anyone, feel free to jump in um, on that. But you always want two. And I think when you're looking at places that report on science, they follow a similar suit where they're like, you know, if one study says having a cat, you know, will prevent, will reduce the risk of heart disease. It's like, okay, well, who else says that? Who else? And that's not a, that's not something that has a study that's been done to my knowledge. I'm really just kind of pulling that out of thin air. Um, but yeah, websites like Healthline, if you go, if we ever tweet an article by Healthline, I believe we have in the past, if you click on those articles, which I hope you all do, follow us on Twitter, by the way, at The Interactome, you will always see at the top, um, I, I believe it's the top right hand corner, it'll say the author and then it'll say medically fact checked by. And you'll have that trusted person who's reviewing this material before it goes live. With that strong background being like, this is accurately presented in this article. This is, you know, trustworthy. So that's that's the kind of stuff I look for. On uh, news organizations like the Washington Post, NPR, they typically will, when they report on science, those aren't just science entity uh, news organizations, right? They report on breaking news, on uh, the economy, things like that. But embedded in the articles, oftentimes they will hyperlink their own sources in the claim. So you get kind of, you know, when you're reading an article and it's a few words are highlighted blue and they're underlined and you can click that and that's another article. That's them citing their claim. So they do that as well. Um, and then using those using those citations, you can kind of backtrack and find where all this information comes from and and. See kind of how it how it snowballs into the information that's presented in front of you um, through through the news cycle. And I guess one more point that I'll add is on say on science news. Um, that's another uh, publication that we frequently tweet about. Science news is actually maybe one of the most popular um, trusted websites that I guess I kind of gravitate to when I'm when I'm developing social content and they always i shouldn't say always but the most of the time in the articles that i tend to pick have citations at the bottom of the articles that will link to the specific paper that they're researching so you can go kind of look through the data see how the paper was uh or the research was structured how how um like what the methods were and we'll and we'll get into methods and papers later on in this episode but just wanted to give a little bit of background on how we find our sources with, uh with what we want to you know what information we want to share with you guys and things to look out for when you're reading um about re- science in the news what are some green flags you know green flags are the the paper is cited and it's like okay as a reader I can go back and I can um double check those claims on my on my own accord and one thing that I think is particularly important to be wary of, because um, I see this a lot also in the age of social media, be wary of blanket statements and blanket claims. And I'll and I'll get into, to, into what that means. We've all seen those articles, you know, where it's promoted material on CNN or whatever. And it's like, you know, those articles that have those absurd pictures on the bottom or whatever, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of times those articles might be titled Eat this to prevent cancer. And it's like, oh, while that's good and dandy, the food that they're talking about doesn't prevent cancer. For example, if, if you've got an article telling you, if you eat blueberries, you reduce the risk of cancer. In a, in a way, that can be construed as somewhat true, but it's pretty removed because blueberries and fruit, they are packed with antioxidants and they reduce the amount of free oxygen radicals in your body. And while free oxygen radicals have been linked to, to increased likelihood of cancer, eating blueberries or food that are high in antioxidants is not going to prevent you from genetic predispositions to cancer or all genetic mutations that could lead to cancer. So it's making sure you look at information with a critical eye.
1: That I feel like that that definitely covers kinda of how our social media stuff happens, so I guess anyone can chime in here. Um, but I, I definitely think that I was kind of I was like, should I interrupt you with the two the two sources thing? Um I don't really have like anything like super great to say about that. But in my experience, when we have one person saying something, no matter how brilliant a scientist they are, or how great they are at vetting sources or anything uh we all make mistakes and i think instead of being like oh well you know if you only have one source it could be you know it, it's it's like it's not as good or something it's like well having one source means that you're relying on one person not to make a mistake one entity not to make that's a, mistake.
0: a great point sam yeah
1: and like i i'm i'm coming off of a week of a few mistakes so <laughs> like i'm sitting here like no, you know what, like if I, if I ran the lab I was in and nobody ever questioned me or, you know, if nobody ever questioned my boss or whatever, we'd be in a, a lot more trouble than we're in um, because we all make mistakes, scientists included, sometimes especially. I feel like as a job, being a scientist involves making a lot of mistakes and learning from them. Uh, so two sources means, you know, someone had to make the same mistake twice, provided the sources are separate enough.
0: Um, I, and hey, if you have three or four sources, even better. The more you can support the claim, the better, but going exactly, Sam said it so eloquently, one, you you can't just rely on one person for a claim. It's important to double check and, and, um, and have that kind of backbone. I don't
1: know if anyone else has got anything to chime in about this. Um,
2: Nothing really other late. than the fact of that's kind of what I used to evaluate the news to. Like, I know we're talking about science here, but I find that if I can find a story that has a consensus across a bunch of different news sources that I know are biased towards one way or another, if they're all kind of reporting on the same thing, then I'm like, okay, I think it's trustworthy. Or at least, you know, more trustworthy than if I just took one random news article and was like, yes, all my eggs in this one basket.
1: I, I do think in the day uh, in the age of the internet, always just be aware of the fact that they could just still be copying the same thing, which sucks. But well, which yeah, that's grand. also it's, true. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. It's but not I guess a, yeah.
2: Big point is like consensus is usually pretty good.
1: Yeah. So uh, next up, I wanted to have Sarah actually talk about how to read papers since we talked a lot about them, but. I'm sure a lot of listeners don't have a ton of experience looking at them. Um, Of course, a a word of caution coming from me as someone who has to read papers, it's hard. Um, (laughs) It takes years of practice to actually get decent at it, weirdly enough, but I figured we might as well give you all an introduction to what that's like.
2: So I'm going to speak to as many different backgrounds and levels of expertise as I can here. Um, so bear with me. I don't mean to talk down to anybody or talk um, kind of too high up in the clouds either. So first thing I wanted to discuss or at least touch on was um, a search engine called PubMed. It is run by the NIH, so the National Institute of Health. Um, It's a government website and it basically compiles a giant database of a bunch of scientific articles out there and it's a very useful resource Um, You can search articles by title, by topic, you can find pretty much anything you'd ever want to find on the website. Um, And I've used it in a bunch of my own projects. I actually don't think I've ever had a project where I haven't used it. And that's awesome. It also depends what kind of project I'm doing, how I end up using PubMed. So um, I'll also talk about within this kind of the structure of a research article or just a research paper in general. There's an abstract, there's an introduction, methods, results, discussion, and then sometimes like a conclusion of sorts as well as citations, figures, supplemental information, and uh, basically each article that's published in the scientific world is usually, and I'll also talk about the other angle of this, is usually published in a journal. Um, And those journals have different requirements for what they consider to be an acceptable part of the research paper. So most papers generally have all of those aspects, though they may be organized in slightly different ways each time. And so each journal has their own formatting and that's specific to them. So that's something scientists keep in mind. Um, But generally... Um, the two types of articles that I've come across the most so far are research articles, so your classic science experiments, you form a hypothesis, you test that hypothesis, etc. And then there's also types of articles called literature reviews, um, and I can let Joe talk about this more too, but um, literature reviews are basically kind of a scientist or a resource company organization, school, whatever you have it, whoever's writing the research article, they're combining a bunch of different research articles into one kind of reference paper. Um, So if I were to do a literature review on cancer, I would go on a source or search engine like PubMed or Google Scholar, and I would type in, you know, pancreatic cancer. And I would just look at the most recent papers, I'd see what I find, and I would start kind of filtering through and see what the most updated um, science is out there and for that I would go through the abstracts of each paper. So reading a research paper can get very intimidating very fast and I often still get intimidated and I've been reading research papers for a while. Um, For me, I don't know if that's ever gonna go away because sometimes you see giant, what looks like the most complicated figure ever, and you're like, oh my god. Or like the statistical test that you have no idea what it is, um, or you need to research more on it yourself because you're like, wow, I completely forget what that is. Um, Abstracts are really good for sorting out which papers you want to give your full attention to, or you want to get really, really deep into the details with. So. For something like literature review, it's super helpful because your abstract is basically your summary of the paper. It's your TLDR. It'll tell you what the paper's about, how they kind of went about um, doing the experiment, if it was an experiment, what was discussed, what they found, basically the main takeaways. And so that really makes it helpful to sort by different topics um, and all around just very useful. So, now you know, I kind of rambled on there. <laughs> But I would say the other aspect I wanted to touch on in terms of finding uh, research papers and just kind of how they're distributed that I've come across is something called uh, preprint. So these are basically, I don't know if they're technically journals by definition. Uh, Maybe someone can jump in on that. But um, basically any research article I've come across is either in a journal or a preprint Um, journal. So something like uh, BioRxiv, MedRxiv, those are ones that I've used the most. So um, a lot of times there is, and maybe this isn't something we can talk about for another episode, I feel like scientists have a love-hate relationships with journals just because they are very complicated to publish in sometimes. Um, And sometimes you just want to get your research out there and you know if it's peer-reviewed and you feel like it's a good study you want to share it with everybody Um, and so journals can have um, certain hiccups here and there where there's a lot of hoops to jump through i'll put it that way with publishing and so a lot of times um, articles will go to preprint, so it hasn't been officially published in a journal but it's still a good peer-reviewed article and it'll appear the same way in that same general format abstract intro methods results discussion etc so those are some things that you can find online. Happy reading. <laughs>
1: Happy reading. So thanks, Sarah. Um, that was a lot of information. Um,
2: I know. I tried to not ramble too long. But no, no, it's <laughs> good. It's...
1: it's good because there's a lot out there. Isn't there? There's a lot to tackle. Um, one thing I'd want to add that I don't know how I learned this, but it's actually, so instead of R-X-I-V, it's pronounced archive the x is actually the greek letter chi yeah yeah so because because it's done by scientists uh there's greek letters thrown in there unnecessarily (laughs) in the in the most typical scientist way possible we have we have a greek letter thrown in there um so yeah it's pronounced the letter r the letter chi and then i've because of course it is because it's just archive um
2: that makes it a whole lot easier because I've only ever heard Rxiv. So I'll say archive now. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So it, it's super, it's a terrible science pun. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> I feel like maybe, maybe we should have brought that up in the names episode. It's just like a ridiculous name, but there you go. I feel like there was like a couple other things. will see if anyone else got anything to touch on.
0: Sarah, I think you did a great job. Covering covering that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Oh, I did have one other thing <laughs> to touch on. It was a t- totally kind of just a quip, but uh, least favorite journal for giant uh, giant uh, figures. <laughs>
2: oh, are you asking me a question and, like that? Did
1: you, did you, I, I have one oh, journal in my, in my mind I, for, that has... No?
2: Go for it. What is it? What's it? about
1: Cell. <laughs> okay. Cell and they're like, parts A through Z figures. I'm sure there's a cell paper out there that goes like A and it goes to the Z and they have to start finding new letters. For like, <laughs> so Sarah, uh, you touched on uh, reviews a little bit and like talking about like kind of how peer review works. But I think uh, next up we'll have Joe talk a little bit more about where papers come from, so the process that happens before papers even get online and where you can actually find them.
3: Yeah, sh- sure. So um, kind of. But even before that, um, there I, I kind of just want to share a little bit about my, like an anecdote about my own experience in the lab um, working on, I'm, I'm working to help understand how a, a potential cancer drug might work. Um, and so like, it's not actually a drug for treating patients yet, but we're trying to develop it and understand how like it works in cells um, to see if we can actually use it as a drug for cancer patients. Um, but one day, um, like a new paper came out. It was a big deal, um, and this was a paper from a lab that was um, in another country, and they had uh, kind of come across what we what may have been um, the actual way that our drug was working, and we were like, "Oh my gosh, wow, this is a big deal!" And uh, like, I, I, like, I got the paper, and I, uh, like the way i i kind of tend to read papers is um like i'll start reading the abstract um and there's usually it's a long dense uh like if you get the whole full paper it's a, it can be a very very long pdf so i'll start with the abstract i'll read that to get like a general sense or a theme of the paper and then um i'll go into uh the introduction kind of just like um it, the introduction often talks about like kind of why people are researching the subject of this paper in the first place and why ask the research questions that they're asking in the paper um and then um then I'll often go to the uh, next up kind of the results from their experiments um and kind of just like oftentimes these results have um like they often ha- like just show like as as sam was mentioning like pretty figures that kind of show like their uh their th- like what they learned from their experiments and things like that and then uh, kind of just oftentimes they'll have um their own interpretation of this data in there um and then I'll go to the discussion which kind of like kind of oftentimes will wrap up the point of the paper and just talk about like the main idea from the paper and where things might be headed next um And also that will kind of tie into the conclusion as well, which is usually like a short paragraph that really, really wraps it up. But um, honestly, the most important part of a paper, which um, is uh, often hard to understand if you're not necessarily working in the exact same field, is the method section. Um, Oftentimes, like when I'm reading the results, I'll I'll see, oh, uh, they have uh, like this cancer cell line with uh, supposedly this new gene that they stuck into the cancer cells. And how did they do that? Um, like I know the way that I stick genes into cancer cells, but how did they do it? And so I'll go to the methods and look to see um, like how they did it. And they'll, they'll talk about how they did it. Hopefully in a way that um, if it's a good paper, um, other scientists can uh, do the exact same thing themselves. And I think that's a very, very important part Um and uh, then also at the very end of the paper, they'll include citations where they'll kind of just talk about like all the all the sources that they got ideas and information from as well. Um, and like the, they'll have like little notes um, throughout the whole paper, just like citing different ideas. And at the very end, you have this big list of all of these different papers. So if you're interested in reading more, kind of going in, uh, checking all the different sources that people cite um, kind of like what Natalie mentioned earlier in the be- the beginning, you go down to the very bottom of these uh, big research papers and you can find the, that list of citations. Um, and um, one thing, the reason I bring this up was because um, I was reading the paper and uh, I was just like, I saw some of the results and um, I said, okay, uh, if this is actually how the drug works, uh, then we should probably try it ourselves to see if like this actually ha- works in our hands. Like in our own lab, with, in our own experiment, like doing the exact same, with the exact same conditions, the exact same methods, um, do we get the same results? And so um, I actually went and uh, my supervisor and I went and did uh, some of the experiments that uh, they, they did. And we actually got slightly different results which um, was surprising um, and maybe it ha- we did something a tiny bit different, maybe we didn't. But um, it go to show um, the importance of replication and replication studies. So uh, these experiments that my supervisor and I did aren't necessarily going to be published, but we had to do these experiments uh, to kind of just get a sense of is the paper correct or not. And obviously you don't do that all the time in science, But it's very important to do it when you can. And it's very important to, like, when you're reading through research papers, um, as Natalie and uh, Sarah mentioned earlier, just, like, if you see a result and you're curious about it, go and find other papers that uh, can either uh, corroborate or refute that. Um, I think that's very, very important. Um, And kind of uh, going back to the idea of reviews, um, they are actually... Um, multiple different kinds of reviews. Um, so like there are just general like literature reviews where they kind of just summarize the results of many different studies. Um, but um, oftentimes uh, people writing reviews um, have a um, a theory or an idea or a hypothesis that they want to get across um, to a reader. And uh, they'll often cite a lot of sources to show like, oh, this might be a reasonable, area of research to explore further and this this is our rationale um another kind of review is a systematic review where like you really like you have a predefined question um that you're really like you decide what the question is going to be beforehand and then you go and kind of like find all as like as many many studies as you can um that kind of will answer that question um And then also, similar to a systematic review, there are meta-analyses, which are kind of like systematic reviews in that you have a—these meta-analyses have a question. So, for example, like, do blueberries actually uh, prevent cancer? Yes or no, uh, as Natalie mentioned. Um, And so, like, people might find all the research that they can on blueberries and cancer and uh, get look at all the different clinical trials that uh, people have done, giving people blueberries and seeing whether they get cancer or not. And they'll actually aggregate all that data together uh, from all these different studies and do statistical tests to see um, if um, the probability of uh, blueberries um, actually preventing cancer is more than trivial or is just trivial. Um, so those are some different kinds of... Uh, Other like um, kind of beyond like a research paper, like there are other um, additional kinds of scientific papers that often summarize um, research papers or um, kind of look at many, many different research papers at once. Um, Of course, one thing to keep in mind about um, a lot of these uh, reviews or meta-analyses is that um, they're only as good as the information that goes into the review. So if you have uh, very like poorly done uh, research papers that are uh, kind of feeding into your meta-analysis, then uh, you might get results in your meta-analysis that aren't necessarily true or aren't necessarily um, what you might actually see if you are looking at a larger group of papers. Um, so I, I think that's a, an important thing to keep in mind. Um, another thing that actually uh, a little while later in my lab, um, after kind of repeating all these studies, we actually, um, we think that the way this drug kills cancer cells actually happens in a slightly different way than what the initial paper I mentioned said. Um, and so we um, we wrote a paper where we kind of like did our, we wrote an introduction, we had our, our methods, we had our uh, like results in nice pretty figures with like a description and uh kind of discussed like what the results mean and with, like a nice little conclusion all our citations we took that and uh we submitted it to multiple different journals um well actually for you really are only supposed to submit to one journal at once so we submitted to the first journal uh, they actually rejected the paper um uh, because they felt that um the paper wasn't really within their scope and so um had to go to another paper or another journal and so we did we did that like five times it it took a while um actually this whole um this whole part of the uh the the process of actually like once you write a paper like let's say you put it in bio, uh, bio archive um once it's up there sometimes it takes a while before it actually you actually find a journal that is interested in like taking it on and publishing it but uh eventually we found a a journal and some editors that were very interested in our paper. And so uh, they decided, okay, well, let's, uh, this looks interesting. Let's send it out to peer review. And so um, we actually, uh, they asked us to suggest people like within the field uh, of our cancer biology field that might actually know what they're talking about if they read our paper. Um, And so uh, we suggested some potential reviewers. Um, They picked some of those reviewers and uh, sent our paper out to three of them and it took a few months but uh or it it took a little time but uh, the reviewers eventually got back to us and said okay well uh you know uh this is an interesting point but you didn't do this experiment that and you need to do this experiment to actually prove your point um because like you have experiment a but um you also need experiment b2 to fully conclude this." And so uh, things along those lines are, hey, have you checked uh, whether this protein is actually involved in the way the drug works? Um, and so we had to respond to that and kind of just say, OK, well, um, we actually we, now we've done those experiments. Thank you for your suggestion. Uh, here are the results and we're going to include them in the, pa- the final version of the paper. And so uh, that that's the stage we're at now. We're wrapping up the final version of the paper and we're going to resubmit it so that... Um, Likely, uh, give like if the reviewers uh agree with our results and think that we've answered our questions uh or their questions to the degree that they would like, uh, then it will be published. And so, uh, it's taken a long time, but um, that is that's been my experience with the peer review process so far. Um, it's it's been very interesting. Um, I, I will say it seems like, um, first, a scientist sometimes like having someone say, ah, you may be wrong, or, oh, you should do this additional thing, like, it can be really frustrating, um, because, like, oh, if we've put so much work into this, and, like, we, we know we're right, or things like that. It, but, um, oftentimes, the vast majority of times, um, like, I, I found that the papers that I'm involved with, um, after the peer review process, end up being much, much better, much more higher quality, um, than they were before. So I think that's really the, uh, the power of having different perspectives come to your science. Um, and I think it's really, it's definitely really important. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect system, but um, it's certainly uh, one of the best ways of doing science that we have so far.
2: I think that's a great story. I like how you interwove all that together in your experiences.
3: Thank you.
1: Yeah, I haven't been lucky enough to get to the point where I've got gotten a first author paper, a paper where like I'm intimately involved in publishing it. But mm-hmm. um, I, I do know that like there's kind of this trope of that one of the reviewers is really nasty, and it's usually reviewer number two. It's kind of a running joke. For in... us,
3: it was a different number reviewer. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but I've had multiple times where I've had people who are in my lab or I'm close to other ways where like publishing papers and it was like pretty usually reviewer number two who was like no nope, you're just wrong like you got to do this other thing and it's like but I have this good data um it is interesting because peer review um it can go so many different ways so I mean yeah it does improve the quality of science to have a bunch of people look at it but sometimes one reviewer may have biases or may have very strong opinions um but I guess it just goes to show that that science is I think that human beings do and people will react the way people do to things. Um, yeah.
3: Additionally, like I think sometimes that's when the editor comes in and kind of like they'll, they'll take everything together and um, kind of synthesize it all as to whether, whether it should be published or not.
1: Yeah. I think it's sometimes it's hard to answer all of those. What I, what my observations it's hard to answer all of those requests from reviewers,
3: but yeah, I th- I think there were some ca- some some questions where we were explicitly were like this is not within the scope of this paper like like we like we, we said it in a nice way um, yeah. but um, yeah there it, 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 there were some questions that uh, it was very clear these people researched something uh, very they they like they research um, we research Schlaffen 12 they research a different Schlaffen um schlaffen is a, a protein yeah. uh, in this case it also means the the German word uh the, it, it's the German word to sleep um which is interesting um but uh these 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 proteins don't really make you sleep um but uh they they, they study other so they're like oh can you compare this uh can you compare this uh this schlaffen to other schlaffens and uh we did we did some work to like c- do that comparison but it, that's really like an entire other, other paper, um, so yeah.
2: Um, I wanted to also quickly mention um, open access articles because I think those are super important to advancing science. Um, and I was just reminded uh, with our talk about journals and everything. I'm sorry if I uh, said that um, Bioarchive, Medarchive um, were peer reviewed. They are not necessarily. However, any article that is in a preprint is open access by default, which is really nice, um, at least in my experiences. And for those who don't know um, or who are delving into reading scientific articles for the first time, if an article you come across is not open access or you're only able to read like an abstract or an abstract and part of the intro, if you reach out to the authors directly, um, they will likely give you that article for free. So just PSA. Um, I think that's super important. I've actually done that before myself when I needed to, and it's definitely useful.
1: Yeah, because publishers will often charge a lot of money for you to be able to see an article. And that's a shame because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not actually academics or people who have access to all of these papers. Um so it's an important thing to point out that if you happen to stumble across an article, you can often email the authors and be like, hey, can I, can I get a look at this? Um, There'll often be an art, a bio-archive copy of it. PubMed also has their own sort of like preprint archive. Um, those are before the printed versions. Sometimes the figures aren't formatted nicely. Um, and it's it's frustrating that like, the final version isn't always that accessible. Uh, that is changing. There are journals that are open access. Um, but we'll have to see where that goes in the future. Um, Yeah, and I don't know if anyone's got anything else to add about Joe's bit here, Um, but for those of you who have stuck through this and you're like, okay, so now I know a whole bunch about papers. um, I just wanna talk a little bit about some stuff that I'm honestly not an expert at, um, and that's just kind of some fun things that I've found bumbling around on the internet. Um, So I am someone who has spent, quite a lot of time on the internet finding things. And I actually, when I was trying to do some research on something that was actually relevant to what I was doing in the lab at the time, I stumbled upon a bunch of articles about what I now refer to as dairy law. So I am not an expert of food science, but I had found this paper. I was looking for something about something called protein cross-linking. So proteins can stick to one another when you heat them up, cool them down. That's how Jell-O works. that's how aggros work. So, like, we'll make, like, petri plates. They have, like, this goo in them. Uh, it's actually also just kind of vegan jello. It's edible, uh, weirdly enough, uh, for scientists. I'm sure probably some listeners have cooked with it. Um, but crosslinking is also essential for regulating how melty cheese is. So uh, there was a paper, uh, well, sorry, a patent, which, uh, so speaking of open access, all patents are public, as far as I'm aware. There's a patent for... Uh, uh, pretty much American cheese, so craft Singles, literally from the craft company, talking about regulating the cross-linking of cheese to uh, uh, regulate how melty it is. And they had this whole like experimental setup to determine the meltiness of cheese. Um, and what's fascinating about all of these sorts of things is that you can actually find some really reputable sources on stuff that you're not necessarily uh, an expert on pretty easily with the internet, so the scope of it. I'm sure we've all found things that aren't particularly reputable, like, well, this is garbage. But patents are a super valuable source because they are to some degree peer reviewed by, I think, the US Patent Office, if I'm understanding patent law well. Again, I'm like so far from a patent lawyer, but they're essentially papers published by companies and individuals. And uh, the question I've heard a lot of times is, is American cheese cheese? And if you look at the original, uh, I think it was 1916 patent from James Kraft himself, it's actually just super pasteurized cheese. So the original reason to make American cheese was because cheese goes bad, gets moldy. And if you boil it, it pasteurizes. Um, and if you do it exactly the right way, it doesn't like turn into a big mu- bunch of goo. It turns into American cheese. It cross turns into this kind of jelly like more jello-y consistency, um, which is really good for making things like grilled cheese. Um, Similarly, in the category of dairy law, there's actually a whole bunch of U.S. Uh, legal documents uh, in the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations that pertain to things like cheese and also ice cream. So weirdly enough, ice cream is a very strictly defined thing in U.S. law. It has to have a very specific milk content. And it has very specific fat content, very specific... Um, Uh, like milk contents by weight. And if you are under that fat count content, you cannot legally consider it ice cream. So gelato is not legally ice cream, for example, um, because uh, it'll actually form ice crystals if stored too cold and it has to be served warmer. Um, But there's actually a lot of complicated science like protein science, material science actually involved in these things. and. But the sources that I found to be super useful are like nothing that I would use in labs. So patents, laws, and uh, on a lot of occasions, uh, trade publications, as well as the occasional article I found on PubMed. But I found this to be just kind of a fascinating rabbit hole to dig down where you can start answering questions about stuff that you find in your everyday life if you know where to look. Um, So this is like a favorite story of mine, just because it's just kind of out of the ordinary when it comes to talking about sources on uh, science, but still very relevant, considering that I found it when I was actually looking for papers for my own research. Um, yeah, so if anyone wants to comment on dairy law, if you want to just wrap this up, but uh...
3: I, I gotta say, it's pretty cheesy.
1: Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> We're leaving that in, by the way. Oh, yeah, we're totally
2: leaving that in. We're We're also leaving to edit in a... Hello, listeners. Thanks for listening. Here's your reward for listening us talk for the (laughs) the past half hour, however long it's been.
3: Thank you for enduring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: Sam, uh, I
0: must say, I'm quite motivated to read about cheese patent law now.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the original craft patent has some really funny bits because it's like <laughs> old timey and talking about cheese and some of these phrases <laughs> are not things that I, it gets me few, if I'm ready I'm like tired enough of reading it. But this is funny like some patents <laughs> a lot of patents are really boring where it's like you know I propose a method for making this lever move a certain way or and this one's like so t- it's true cheesy nature and it's like Acting as if you know about cheese. It's like I like who knows about cheese like that. It's like a very know it all nineteen early nineteen hundreds businessman writing about cheese. It's it's quality. Um Yeah, so thank you all for listening. I think we already plugged our yes. Twitter. Um,
2: Let us know online if you think our content is Gouda or could Brie better.
0: There you go. (laughs) You're a genius.
1: (laughs) Um, Thanks so much for listening. um, And hope you'll tune in next time.